0: Coming up on Tech Nation, how hard could communicating Chinese actually be in our golden dawn of digital technology? Enough to challenge its embrace of telegraphs, typewriters, computers, and smartphones, all originally built with alphabetic letters in mind. We'll hear from Yale professor Jing Su about Kingdom of Characters, the language revolution that made China modern. Then, diagnosing neurodegenerative diseases like early Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and more with a simple-to-use but scientifically advanced retinal scan. All this, coming up on this week's Tech Nation.
1: Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. In 2011,
0: National Geographic Explorer and Residence, Wade Davis, wrote Into the Silence, The Great War, Mallory, and the Conquest of Everest. Today, a full century later, we have satellite imaging and GPS, satellite phones, and the experience of a hundred years of climbing. But in the 1920s, what did climbers know about climbing Mount Everest?
2: They knew very, very little more. I mean, you know, Everest sort of emerged in the last years of the Raj as sort of the third pole. You know, the British, an empire of explorers, had lost the race for the North and South Pole, and here in their very midst was this third pole that rose into the heavens. And so the quest for Everest began really as a sort of a gesture of redemption for an empire of explorers that had lost those races. But because of the intervening war, where so much of Britain was destroyed by the mud of Flanders, it emerges as a kind of a gesture of regeneration for a nation bled white by war. So that was always my interest in, in the story of George Mallory.
0: In a sense, the, the empire, the great global empire of Britain, has really been gnawed by the Great War.
2: Well, you know, that was a seminal event of our times. Um, you know, Churchill famously described the Second World War as just the extinct, the um, second half of the First World War. He called it the Thirty Years' War. And he famously said, never there was, was there a war. Or less necessary to fight um, than the first, or more necessary to win than the second. I became interested in the story of George Mallory really in a serendipitous way. I was traveling 4,000 miles across Tibet as part of an ecological survey in the spring of 96, when the disaster happened on Everest that uh, John Krakauer so powerfully wrote about in his book, Into Thin Air, and uh, with me was Daniel Taylor, who was uh, son and grandson of medical missionaries, and his father had been a great friend of Howard Somerville, who climbed with George Mallory in 1922 and 24. And the very next fall, Dan'l and I were back on the east face of Everest in the Kanchung face in the Gamma Valley trying to photograph clouded leopards. And Dan'l, in his inim- inimitable way, began to speak of these Englishmen in tweeds reading Shakespeare to each other in the snow at 20,000 feet. And that was the Everest of his imaginings, not the kind of ignoble commercial world of today. And... As he spoke to me, I became enchanted by these men. Who were they? And I was never interested in whether George Mallory made it to the top or not on that fateful day. You know, the story goes on June 8th, 1924, he's spotted by Noel Dell with his young companion, Sandy Irvin, uh, going strong for the top on the northeast ridge with a mist coming in that envelops their memory and myth and they have never seen or heard from again. The question is, did Mallory make it before he died? And what interested me is what spirit carried him on. In 1921, the reconnaissance of Everest was just that. They had to find the mountain. They had to march 400 miles off the map. To to find it. To find it, to get to the base (laughs) of a place that had been seen from Kampazong, but never approached by any European. And on that approach march, um, a a high-altitude physiologist by the name of Arthur Kellis, 56 years old, too old for Everest, famously died of exhaustion. And he was buried at a Tibetan fort called Kampazong. Now, according to historians of Everest, in 1921, only one man kept a journal, but I found alive four doors from the house I was born in Vancouver, the son of a man who did, Oliver Wheeler, unknown, unsung hero of 1921, the man from the Survey of India, seconded to the expedition, the man, not Mallory, it was Wheeler who found the doorway to the mountain, the route up the East Rhongbook to the North Cole. He was the one who fa- famously found the chink in the armor of Everest. And Wheeler kept a journal. And when I visited his, his son, he pulled these two volumes off his shelf, and I, I was breathless. Never before seen by Everest historian.
0: You've been listening to a 2011 Tech Nation interview with National Geographic explorer-in-residence Wade Davis about his book Into the Silence, The Great War, Mallory, and the Conquest of Everest. Today, a University of British Columbia anthropology professor, Wade Davis has recently published Magdalena, River of Dreams, a Story of Columbia. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes.
1: 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.
0: From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Yale University Professor Jing Su about the challenge and journey of communicating the Chinese language in digital technologies. Her book is Kingdom of Characters, the Language Revolution that Made China Modern. Then, diagnosing neurodegenerative diseases like early Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and more with a simple but scientifically advanced retinal scan. I speak with Eliav Shaked, co-founder and CEO of the Toronto-based firm Retaspect TechNation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now, Professor Jing Su. Well, Professor Su, welcome to TechNation. Thank you for having me. Now, when we say technology, we often think of computers and cell phones and electronics, but language, both spoken and written, are technologies. They were entirely created by humans. Absolutely. And actually, writing is really
3: the first technology we have because it objectifies our thoughts so that we can continue to refine and hone our thinking process to abstraction, philosophy, so on and so forth.
0: Now, this points to a uh, very important understanding from the book, and that while Chinese is the first language, which is still alive today, it was spoken long before it was written, and humans had to figure out how to write it. What did that mean in Chinese?
3: Well, I think in many cultures, the oral generally precedes the written culture. And for Chinese, I think the oldest writing we have, examples we have is actually about from 3,000 years ago, And these were originally symbols or shorter characters, more primitive characters that were used for divination. That is to say, um, people asked for simple messages. They wanted to communicate with greater forces in nature to figure out when's a good time to plant harvest, when's a good time to marry. You know, They want auspicious conditions. So writing is also that first sign in Chinese culture where you're actually in communion with larger patterns of nature. In fact, I talk about this In the book where there's a very old theory of how Chinese writing came to be. And the story goes that there's a four-eyed sage who observed nature by looking up at the cloud formations in the sky and looks down on the ground and sees birds leaving the tracks in the sand after they cross. And he realized that there's these larger, more underlying fundamental patterns in the universe in which humans partake So he started to then compose characters. And Chinese characters are made of strokes. That is to say, they look like lines that somehow come together, crisscross patterns. And for him, that resonates with the idea of pattern in the universe. And writing in that way is a kind of pattern. Now, oddly enough, this is not just a a myth um, that's been passed on over centuries. So the reason I came to write The Kingdom of Characters was actually about, I think it was 2006. So Long before this, about twelve years ago in two thousand and ten, uh, what led me down this rabbit hole was this chapter I wrote on Chinese typewriter in my last book, *Sounds and Script in Chinese Diaspora*. But it kind of led me to this question because, um, you know, look, people talk about Chinese writing system as though it were in deficit. It was hard and complicated. There's so many of them. There's tens of thousands, um, not just 26 letters. And also, they don't come in a nice and neat order, right? If you think about the power of the alphabet, one great advantage of the Western alphabet is that it comes in this perfect order that you can use to index or classify other things. So for instance, B never comes before A, and S is always followed by T, so on and so forth, which is why we even have in everyday parlance, we talk about the A-list, or the B side, you know, or, you know, plan B. And so in our own minds, we're very much oriented towards how we prioritize in language by virtue of having ABC through the Western alphabet. Chinese characters, not so. And so for many centuries now, for a couple of centuries, Chinese has been compared to Western alphabet as something that did not lend itself to the development of science and technology. That I was really this older world of literacy where you know, knowledge was accumulated slowly and that the written words was reserved only for the few. And so after working on Chinese typewriter, I began to think about, is it really true? <laughs> if I could just press, you know, academics seldom ask bottom line questions, but I was, I was bent on asking this one. Just, is it really true that ideographic writing systems like Chinese actually does something to you, that actually disadvantages its speakers and users in some way in relation to the alphabet. And at the time, neuroscience started to develop in this sub-niche or sub-area, which was about um, the science of reading. And there was a number of real scientists who were looking into what exactly happens in our brain when we read. And originally, they did this to study dyslexia of course, it soon became clear that they really had to move outside of alphabetic speakers to understand the universality of what they were seeing. So I actually tracked down this neuroscientist in Paris and also one in the United States, because independently of one another, they both arrived at a similar conclusion, which is this. So the interesting fact is, writing system, the fact of writing of you know human languages, is only 5,000 years old, which means Evolutionarily speaking, there's no way that we could have evolved fast enough that there's actually a particular area in our brain that's geared towards just reading these graphs on paper or on whatever service you, you write it on. And so it turns out that it actually is built on a more primitive infrastructure developed in our neural circuit to actually map out our sense of space and time. So it's actually based on patterns, shapes. Um, in nature that we learn to recognize and to survive. You can imagine if you're hunting, if you're on the back in you know, a hunter-gatherer age, if you need to find your way home or you need to sense danger, it's very important to recognize where you are in relation to things and to be able to tell what's on the horizon, right? So what's mind-boggling for me, of course, is after talking to them, I realized that this dovetails with the Chinese myth of how writing came to be precisely. It's about observation of nature. It's about pattern recognition, so that actually just kind of blew my mind. And then I realized even though we think of technology as solution driven, there's a, there's a real story to be told when technology meets cultural baggage. So what is it a lot of times in the history of science technology, we kind of privilege one or the other, and we don't get to really think about how much the cultural factor really intervenes. For instance, if you ask most linguists, they will tell you all languages tend towards simplification. So in other words, A language system that's as complex, as tonally complex, and also in terms of script, um, and complicated and, and huge inventory like Chinese, should then never really survive the modern age, right? How could it have when the 20th century is all about speed, precision, efficiency, technological change? So how Chinese script actually survived the modern age. And not only that, but thrive at this very moment as we speak. It's just really an extraordinary history that I thought couldn't just be told through the usual objective history lens, where we kind of minimize the different inventors and humans who actually participate in the process, but actually to see it through their eyes, these remarkable, I would say kind of obsessive personalities that actually took part in preserving the Chinese revolution and propel it forward. After all, it was the longest revolution of the 20th century, and in some ways, the least known.
0: I think it is the least known. I mean, if we go back to, say, 1900, and all that was happening around there, or perhaps to the 1850s and the Opium Wars, there was a fight within China itself to how does it modernize, what does it modernize, language being just one.
3: Absolutely. And and if you can believe it, the seeds were actually planted even before that. So this is a history that's been more than 400 years in the making. Because the way the Chinese started to look at their language differently was really because of, well, first, they had an experience with translating Buddhist scriptures in Sanskrit, right? Where they had to figure out how do you, of course, you have to chant this, the scriptures and chant the sutras. And how do you actually phoneticize you know, Sanskrit so that you can pronounce it? But the more drastic shift came... The more, the more drastic challenge was when the Western missionaries, the Jesuits, came in the 16th century and brought along with them the Romanization system. Because they were actually trying to learn Chinese. They were trying to assimilate. And so they used Roman letters to try to figure out how to cue themselves to pronounce things in Chinese. And But through that, the Chinese saw how odd that, that the foreigners can hear our language so differently, but notated in such a way with these 26 marks that are so efficient that they can then reproduce or recognize the sounds we speak. So that was really the beginning. But the 16th century, um, that didn't quite catch because the Western influence, the, the missionaries were actually pretty restricted um, a circle, and they were treated well by the court, but they weren't going to be allowed to go to the masses and countryside and start, you know, converting people and share their knowledge. So it was really the 18th, or sorry, the 19th century after the Opium War, which forced open these treaty ports and made it legal, essentially, for foreigners to come in, that you had this mass influx of Bible, Bible translations, where missionaries then recruited local Chinese to help them translate Bible into sort of vernacular or actually literary Chinese.
0: You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Yale Professor Jing Su, who specializes in modern Chinese literature and culture from the 19th century to the present. Her book is Kingdom of Characters, The Language Revolution That Made China Modern. Well, anytime you go to automate anything, build a computer or an app or a typewriter or a telegraph or you name it, the first thing you do is say, okay, where are we starting? And of course, Western listeners, um, in English, we are like, okay, we have 26 letters and go into words and this all makes sense. And, um, and, and they can recognize Chinese characters. They can say, oh, that's Chinese. We can see that. They don't realize that one character means, can mean something very complex, that there are many characters, and that they can also be pronounced in different tones or pitches. To convey a different meaning, describe this complexity for us. Give us a sense for that problem, or
3: challenge, we'll call it. Absolutely. So, one way to start is, you know, for an alphabetic speaker, um, let's say you're a listener, to try to make a bridge in imagining what a Chinese character actually is like. The first question would be, well, what is an equivalent of a character? Is it a word? So, in a word in English, we think of a group of letters that are brought together to spell a word, and words are separated by what I like to, you know, what others have called the honorary 27th letter of the alphabet, which is essentially a space. So immediately you will find it very hard to find that equivalent because a character is actually less and more than a word. So one of the greatest myths is that Chinese characters are these standalone monosyllabic units. Um, But in fact, characters often occur in pairs, if not in phrases, in order to make sense. And you can imagine this is actually how Chinese listener or or user would sort of recognize because, you know, characters are also, there was no punctuation marks in Chinese for a long time. So you actually had to figure out how to group characters that make sense out of the stream of characters that's on a page. So, you know, these groupings actually matter because they give, that means that when a Chinese user looks or uses Chinese, it is often in context, in the context of its adjacent neighbors and what characters sort of occur most often with. Now, another complicated thing about the, 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 the written form is that Chinese actually have a lot of homophones. That is to say, um, you know, in English, you think we have, we have certain examples like the kernel of a corn uh, versus kernel as in general in, 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 in the military. But where Chinese is concerned, there's vastly many, many more homophones. For instance, you know, let's take my name, J-I-N-G. It could be any number of characters, not to mention characters that have different pitches. Because one of the trade-offs in looking at Chinese romanization is that it loses this physical cue, which is why Chinese characters are complicated because they're visually distinct and complex. But one look at it, you will recognize that it is distinct and that it cannot be any other character and there's no confusion. So what ends up happening when you Let's say transpose Chinese and represent it in 26 letters, you lose a lot of that very fine and necessary detail that helps with the visual cue, right? But again, that's kind of one of the myths, too, is that Chinese ideographic writing is very visual. It is what they used to call pictographic, right? Whereas Western alphabet is phonetic. But turns out, guess what? Ideographic or pictograph is only less than 3% of Chinese modern Chinese lexicon. And the fact that it is semantic or more visual it gives more, more visual clues actually also false, because it turns out characters also have a phonetic component that kind of gives cue what it sounds like. It's just not as transparent and not as obvious and actually not as uh, fixed as it is in the Western alphabet. And just to bend your mind a little bit more, if we think of the alphabet as sort of abstract, letters. letters but guess what? When it was in, the, in Phoenician alphabet, which is where our Western alphabet letters come from. Letters were also ideographic in the sense that the letter A, capital A, was meant to resemble a house. So that visual aspect just fell out of usage earlier, whereas Chinese retained that visual aspect in the physical form. So there are lots of ways to explain tone and pitch and why that matters. Because now you understand why there needs to be these sort of tonal differentiations when you speak for the listeners to understand which characters meant, if there's so many ones that might be the same, share the same uh, pronunciation. So the best way to explain tone is that it's a pitch. Now, we speak in pitch all the time because if we don't, we talk like robots. It would just sound completely monotonous. So for instance, take take the word, if I were to say, that's the difference between yes and yes. So for us, that's the difference between a question and a kind of emphasis. But in Chinese, that's basically, in standard Mandarin, that would be a second tone, which goes up, yes, and a downtone, which is the fourth tone, yes, which goes down. So these tones are much more regimented and important. So in English, it's kind of just like, it's colors and mood, right? It sort of gives an idea what the other person means, or kind of like the nonverbal cues. But Chinese, that's much more codified. And so tones and pitches are fixed in standard Mandarin, which has four. But historically speaking, because of the many hundreds of dialects in in China across the regions, you know, a character could be pronounced differently. And that is why before 20th century, before spoken Chinese was standardized, a national tone, which I talked about in chapter one of the book, you know, the northerners couldn't understand the southerners. And officials who were sent to distribute famine relief, for instance, will often complain of the fact that they can't even communicate with the local officials, let alone try to get people what they need.
0: You learned English as a young child when your family moved to the United States from Taiwan. And apparently you were ecstatic to learn that there were only 26 letters in the alphabet. I guess you'd been learning thousands, hundreds and thousands of characters.
3: (laughs) Oh, uh, I'm not sure 100,000, because in, in school, you basically need about, you need to learn about three or 4,000 for literacy
0: for your oh, so school. So um, young children can uh, do a three or 4,000, they be fine.
3: <laughs> young, young children in elementary school, and then it goes up from there, I think, in high school. Um, yes. And in fact, but the system I learned was quite different. So I grew up in Taiwan. And if, if I had grown up in mainland China, I would have learned it via the romanization system, Pinyin. Because one of the ways in which romanization became important was that people thought, you know, no one has the time to spend all these hours and hours learning how to write characters, you know, and committed to mental and uh, muscular memory. Um, but the system I learned was a different kind of phonetic symbols, which were developed in the early 20th century called Bopomofo. And that's what we learned in Taiwan. Now, Bopomofo, if you look at it, there there's a set of 36, 38. Um, such symbols and they're derived from character writing. So they don't look like letters, even though they're phonetic uh, symbols. And they do the job quite well because they really conform to Chinese speakers' speaking habits. But one of the reasons that Bopomofo did not win out um, in mainland China when the nationalists were still in power is because they realized that they Chinese have this kind of discussion all the time, which is, you know how to modernize Chinese, whether it's to go wholesale alphabetic, right, which is already an international system. So you basically just tap into an existing infrastructure that works and it's already global. Or you insist on your own, which may be better suited for you, but it has restricted uptake right, because it only will be used within your own community of speakers. So MOFO is considered a little too Chinese a little too specialized. And so that is why the Romanization, the wave of the normalization that not only swept across China, but also Eurasian continent in the 20s, you know, Lenin called it the Great Revolution of the East, um, that took a stronger hold. But Chinese always retained their own character writing against all odds, because early on, it was determined that even though in the late 19th century, some of these first script reformers actually <laughs> were surprisingly progressive and said, Oh, why don't we just do away with the Chinese writing system? Why don't we just use alphabet letters or or shorthand or you know, like like Pittman's short Isaac Pittman's shorthand, or some other combined symbol of, you know, Roman letters and other uh, uh, marks we can come up with to represent Chinese. But then of course after the fall of the last dynasty and the modern nation was born, it became very important that no With a a nation, you have to have your own language, and with your own language, you need to have a standard. And that is why Chinese characters was never going to die. It may be faulted for having retarded China's entry in the modern world, but it sure the hell was going to survive it.
0: Now, of the things that I appreciate from your book is uh it's one thing it's like, oh good, you're doing alphabetic letters. Uh so we can get you on a computer, no problem. We gotcha, you know. But I wanna go back for a sense to the to the actual experience of speaking Chinese and English. I mean, here you are a young person in, in, well, you've learned your letters, but eventually you're going to learn English. And uh, you're right. We struggle to move our tongues and our, our mouth muscles in unnatural ways. And I'm sure that's true for Chinese who are, excuse me, and I'm sure that's true for English who are trying to learn Chinese. It's so
3: funny you say that because as a you know, I originally, I, because I'm I'm an academic, you know, it's not often that I talk about myself and I don't like to do that. But then a friend of mine who read the manuscript has said, you know, this is a great book, but for anyone who's not a native Chinese speaker, they're going to be like, oh, God, okay, I'm going to brace myself and really grit my teeth through this because it's about Chinese language, which is so hard. And she said, you know, why don't you, you know, why don't you tell them about your experience learning English? And I thought, That's actually a great idea because what I want to do was to meet my readers halfway, right? That is is kind of like a preemptive olive branch. If I could share the story of what it was like and how hard it was in some ways for me to learn English, that maybe my readers will be willing to also step into this world of Chinese and read about how these great adventurers, innovators, hacks and copycats and revolutionaries and martyrs did their part right to try to step into the alphabetic world and reconcile themselves to it.
0: I'm speaking with Yale professor Jing Su about her book, Kingdom of Characters, the language revolution that made China modern. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, Pandora, and Alexa, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, diagnosing early Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and other neurodegenerative diseases with a simple eye exam. Stay with us. We'll be right back. back. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm speaking with Yale Professor Jing Su about Kingdom of Characters, the language revolution that made China modern.
3: So it's true that when I came, it was um it was odd because I, I remember how you know when I was a child, my 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 parents, my father in particular, read a lot of literary Chinese with me, and he taught me poetry and calligraphy and all that, and I just remember how how much coloration I colored, or sorry, excuse me, back up, how much color I lost in reading poetry in English rather than Chinese, because I was so used to the visual cues, you know, the the imagery that comes just so easy and effortless to me. And when I read the alphabet letters, it was just harder. You know, I didn't have a feeling for it. In fact, one of the one of the funny um, funny byproduct of this, which I still can't really explain to this day, I have a very hard time cussing in Chinese. Like I, I just can't do it. I can't <laughs> say a bad word in Chinese, but English, from the age of nine, which when I came, no problem. Within months, I was saying "damn this," f- "that," because it didn't mean anything to me. I had no emotive association, <laughs> and so that that's kind of an oddity I have noticed. My bilingualism has stayed very distinct. <laughs>
0: Well, it's interesting, you know, t- you write to think in English, I had to breathe and live a worldview that was expressed and constructed in that language. And so when one becomes a Chinese speaker, you have to adopt a different worldview.
3: It is so true. And, you know, even now, when like, I, because of, of course I'm a China scholar, and one of the things I work on is U.S. China relations. And I often look at the verbal exchanges. You know, when Chinese tells the Americans, you know, what you did hurt the feelings of the Chinese. Americans are like, what? Like, what is that supposed to mean? You know, and there's, there's so much culturally, uh, cultural misfires in how we understand each other politically, right? Because it's kind of like the cultural translation that people don't think about that happens on the level of language. What is really being said? And Americans might understand the concept of face, the Chinese culture, but they don't really understand it. And the idea of hurting someone's feelings, they don't even know what that really means. And what, moreover, what place does it have in international politics? But again, you have to look at the language, how things are said, and the kind of cultural universe that people inhabit, because languages make worlds, right? And having those of, you know, those of your listeners who might be bilingual understand how much more enriching it is. I mean, it's hard it was for me personally to cross over into English. Now I feel I have almost like a like two different worlds to access and to cross. And it's really a remarkable experience. And then being able to explain that to people, like when I did in Chapter 4, when I said, you know what, let's do a mental exercise. Let's just say, what would happen to 26 letters of the alphabet if you were to try to reorganize them the way you do with Chinese characters? Well, guess what? You have to go by shape. <laughs> so in other words... Forget ABCD. You have to group C O Qs together because they're round. They shall share a circle. Or if you go by stroke order, well, the first letter of the alphabet will have to be E because it has four strokes. And so all these sort of different ways in which it kind of like you know just kind of turns your it's kind of turns your brain a little upside down, plays little tricks on you. It's precisely what happens when we think in a different language, right? We think different logic. And language is where we develop a kind of rational thinking. When I tell you, when I wrote in a book about critical thinking, you know, the acrobatics of the mind that seem to be the only way to arrive at a kind of proper inference and deductive logic, that's very particular to actually thinking in English. And, you know, when logic as a concept was translated into China, they really had to understand, like, they, mathematically, that it really comes out of math, and that how to translate that into a language system that actually doesn't really lend itself to those kind of vocabulary and terminology. So the Chinese actually had to import all those terms and figure out how to translate them into Chinese before they can begin to understand how to then adapt and understand this idea of logic that Westerners seem to throw, you know, in matters of international law and whatnot.
0: Now, let me ask you this. Humans are very adaptive, Um, and sometimes we change because of the technology. The technology actually changes how we do things because that's the way we get it to work for us. Did this effort to develop, for instance, the Chinese typewriter, and as it goes on, the telegraph, the uh, computer, et cetera, to use it and adapt it, did that change Chinese very much, if at all, the language of it? Yes, so
3: yes, and I think one of the, One of the things I really love about, you know, digging up this history is that it really shows how much China and the West had been learning from each other long before they defined themselves to be different or even foes. So it is certainly true that Chinese language itself changed in the 20th century. It adapted to a lot of the grammatical, um, um, grammatical structure of English. So for instance, when you read literary Chinese, classical Chinese, there's very seldom do you see I, the subject I. It's implied. And action can certainly sometimes, you know, a, a noun can become a verb, a verb become a noun. And it's like, it's all much more fluid. Now, modern Chinese in some ways is much more regimented than before because it abides by this subject, you know, object structure. So that is certainly a Western import. So there are many ways in which the alphabet, alphabetic thinking, um, you're, you're back up. Indo-European language structure also penetrated Chinese language. So in some ways, yes, in these other imperceptible ways, the two languages have been mixing for a long time. And that's why when you talk about, is a Chinese primitive, should it not have survived, that it's actually a denigration of Chinese script, I don't think that's really fair to say. Because that argument really narrows our understanding of this larger encounter that happened between two gigantic old writing systems and how they were gonna live with one another. So I often think about, you know, when we say it's not just the Westerners that denigrate or might have, you know, exoticized Chinese in the 17th century and then downgrade in the 18th century, and then by nineteenth century where the idea of evolution reigns supreme, they start thinking of Chinese as backward and primitive, etc. And that is usually where story begins when people look at this history, is as cast in the sense of, you know, China rising up, you know, colonial degradation of the Chinese culture and language. But you know what? The Chinese themselves have been struggling with the Chinese language over millennia, with the idea of how to distinguish between their own writing system from unorthodox popular usage. So one of the chapters in the book talks about Mao, 1950s, and where the two big campaigns that happened, the landmark events that happened in the Chinese language with simplification of characters and the romanization of characters in pinyin, which was basically China's own standard way of romanizing. And so little do people know that the nationalists were the first ones who actually proposed simplified characters in the 1930s. But because the first half of the 20th century was littered with wars and revolutions and unrest and, and invasion, you know, the Japanese, World War II, that there was never a stable enough environment to push through any language policy. So even though the nationalists were the first first ones who proposed these simplified characters, they were not able to push it through, and it was left to the communists who who unified modern China in the 20th century for the first time. That was then in a position to basically fulfill this vision that Chinese reformers, intellectuals, and innovators have been thinking about um, by then 70, 80 years. But of course, Because 1949, which was the year that the communists took over mainland and the nationalist government retreated to Taiwan, has so defined our world that we no longer remember that history very well. Because also, after the nationalists went to Taiwan, they decided that they would preserve traditional Chinese culture and that would preserve Chinese writing as it always had been. So they too kind of gave up on the idea of simplification and then it was left to the communists to take over. But that said, You know, the idea of simplified characters also, in the end, it belonged and came from the Chinese people because we had examples of simplified characters from way, way back where street vendors, you know, you can imagine, or actors, you know, they had little time to actually write out every stroke. So they sort of wrote their own shorthand to remember what they were supposed to say, what business transaction took place, you know, how many sacks of rice you just sold, you know, how many pigs you're actually buying. So all these simple transactions also created, you know, this, also the popular realm, the popular uses, use, um, usage of the written Chinese script that at times come into odds with the official sanctioning of the Chinese writing system.
0: Whether it's the modern day computer, the, the, you know, your telephone, you know, with how big does that have to be to have Chinese characters on it? Um, You go back to the typewriter or even the telegraph. How do you send a simple telegram? I mean, this is the essential challenge. Yeah, and telegraphs
3: are great stories because that in some ways, I mean, that was the internet of the 19th century. And China learned a very hard lesson from that because they did not get in on the telegraph fast enough. So you have to remember this was about 20, 30 years after the Opium War. So China still a bit tender from what happened during the Opium War. You know, they understood what Europeans would do once they got their foot in the door. So they were very cautious and very wary of any Western suggestions of bringing something into China. So when the Russians came, when the French came off to build telegraphic lines, you know, China's response was always, no, 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 thank you. We have good men on horseback who can carry letters and packages. So they didn't need that. Well, guess what? Because after the Opium War, the Western powers decided they wouldn't really care. And there's also the most favorite nation clause. Essentially, they came up with this arrangement that whatever advantage one Western nation was able to get from China, the others will enjoy the same privilege. So what you had was, that you create a situation where every country wanted to push further into China because it would benefit all. So the Danes decided China said no, but they didn't really care. So on a moonless night that I described in Chapter 3, they snuck onto Chinese territory and laid down a telegraphic cable anyway. And not only that, the Danes also thought um, several steps ahead. That in order to diffuse and to neutralize or minimize Chinese resistance to this foreign encroachment, this foreign technology, they would actually make telegraph easy for Chinese to use. So what the Danes ended up did was they hired this French harbor master in Shanghai. Well, it originally it was started by a Danish professor of astronomy, but he came up with this idea that, okay, you would just assign each character four to six numbers. And so that basically created the first telegraphic codebook, which you can actually still see in the National Archives in Copenhagen, where I, I first encountered it. Um, and that essentially provided a way of sending Chinese in telegraph. Now, there's a problem with that. First of all, it's very hard to use, and cumbersome because they there was no rhyme or reason what order the characters came in, and these just, just sort of assigned a random four digits. They just
0: threw it out,
3: just randomly put them all out there. They basically threw it out and say, "Done. Now you can do it. You, know, you can send Chinese, you know, Chinese telegrams. You know, what, 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 what else? Four, four,
0: seven, nine, nine, two,
3: one, zero, five, six. Exactly. And it
0: takes an operator
3: a lot of time. They have to first look up the character in the telegraph book and to make sure they actually follow it all the way across that they. Actually, match the same code to the character then they have to remember that long enough to actually tap it out you know at their at, at their machine and then on the receiving end the operator have to do the reverse now the additional problem is you know for telegram sending western letters the, the the it's just you know combinations of dashes and dots and it becomes so intuitive that an operator can memorize what an a sounds like b sounds like very easy that so they don't even have to look at they don't even have to look at the keys now the other, which is a more complicated issue, was that as telegraphy, you know, because of scale economy became cheaper, they kind of stratified the the costs. So they, you know, around 1911 or 12, they came up with a system where Western Telegraph companies offered a deferred rate which was that you can actually send your telegram at a cheaper rate if you can just wait for you know, 12 or 24 hours. So of course, Chinese was not sending alphabet letters, so it was locked out of that advantage. Now, the real killer is it turned out it is much more expensive to send telegrams in numbers than in alphabet letters. Because if you look at any letter in the Morse table, they have more dots and dashes they require more dots and dashes than any letter or most letters. Um, So that actually just doubled China's disadvantage. And it took China about 50 years just to get the Western Telegraph companies to recognize that Chinese writing had to be an exception, largely thanks to this this ingenious, uh, very mild-mannered, but incredibly persuasive bureaucrat that I talk about, Wang Jingchun, um, in the Telegraph um, chapter, chapter three. So that taught China a huge lesson. So if you fast forward three decades, less than 1950s, 1960s, where lo and behold, the next technological revolution was on the rise, and that was going to change the world, which was the computing revolution. Then China, even though it had just gone through the Cultural Revolution, it was poor, it was impoverished, its university systems were shut down. It basically had no talent, no money no resources. China vowed that it cannot afford to lose out on this wave. So a project named 748, which was named because it was founded in August of 1974, was specifically uh, put forward to research in the area of Chinese information processing, Chinese language information processing. Now you might wonder why is that? Well, why is that important? Because at that time in 1560s, computers, you remember computers used to be these giant, um, giant machines that would be like a room, like the size of a room. They were there to basically perform calculation tasks. So think of it as just like number crunchers. But very soon discovered that computers can also process human language information, like communication. So it's moving very quickly into that arena where you soon will have laptops and desk, desktop computers. So that's why the, for human language systems, if you're not in the computer, you basically can't take advantage of communication. And how important has that become in the 21st century? And if you think how important data is to us now, where you hear that data is the new oil of our time, well, the original data is all those piles and mountains of written records that have been done by hand that have to be processed in a computer and put into it. So, if you didn't have this bottleneck to breakthrough, if you couldn't get through Chinese language information processing and get Chinese into the computer. Input it and have it spit out on the screen or a piece of paper at the other end from a printer, then you're going to be locked out of the 21st century as we know it. And they weren't. <laughs> they weren't, and it would took quite a bit of extraordinary, extraordinary tenacity, as you will read about in chapter six um, and part of seven, but um, also unexpected help from a Chinese-American scientist. So I also talk about this nexus of knowledge exchange and the face-to-face contacts that
0: made this history possible. Well, language, people, just unbelievable schemes that failed and succeeded, Uh, geopolitics, the whole thing is here. The whole thing is here (laughs) from an academic. That's fantastic. Uh, Jingzu, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you come back and see us again.
3: I would love to, Maura. Thank you so much for your time today. It was a lovely conversation.
0: My guest today is Yale professor Jing Su. Her book is Kingdom of Characters, The Language Revolution That Made China Modern. It's published by Riverhead Books. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. We know that the back of the eye, the retina, is a window into what's happening in the brain. If only we could read it. Today, I speak with Eliav Shaked, co-founder and CEO of the Toronto-based firm Retispect. Eliav, welcome to the program.
4: Happy to be here. Thank you.
0: When I go to uh, the ophthalmologist or the optometrist for an eye exam, they put me in front of this contraption and holds my head. And they're taking what they say a retinal scan, a picture of the back of my eye. What are they looking for?
4: They're looking at the color image and they're trying to identify structural, functional, anatomical changes that relates to ocular diseases. For example, um, glaucoma, diabetic retinopathy, things that relate to the different parts of the retina um, that they can look and, and, and identify changes or abnormalities based on that color image.
0: Now, we all know that the, the color image that The visual spectrum, that which our eyes see, is in that visual spectrum. But there are many more spectrums. And I understand that there is a new camera that enables uh, taking pictures of the back of the eye in many different frequencies from the visual all the way up to the infrared.
4: That is correct. This camera that collects a lot more wavelengths could be connected to this uh, camera that is utilizing an ophthalmology or optometry, optometry settings, and you can capture an image that comprises of 130 wavelengths from the back of the eye. And this is an incredible amount of data that we can learn from. So when a patient walks into an optometry or ophthalmology clinic, uh, they sit there at the same machine, and you could connect the a special camera, the hyperspectral camera, into that machine. And they just follow the same procedure and get one image in a non-invasive and comfortable way. What the, the data that comes out of that picture comprises of 130 different pictures with different wavelengths. And this is a very high quality and resolution that allows for um, the measuring, the intensity of those different colors or different wavelengths. Uh, that gives a whole new perspective to seeing the unseen and and interpretation interpreting that um, in in uh, the spectral domain
0: now frequently when we can collect new data in the in the science area uh, we actually don't quite understand what we're seeing and I understand that you're working with the University of Minnesota
4: They are great partners in the University of Minnesota this is where they started uh, exploring the Uh, The signature, the optical signature of a unique protein called amyloid beta. And that unique protein is considered one of the hallmark pathologies for Alzheimer's disease. So that starts very early stage, just like cholesterol as an indicator for cardiovascular disease. Amyloid beta aggregation in an abnormal way is one of the hallmark pathologies for Alzheimer's disease. And that's process starts 10, 20 years before the emergence of clinical symptoms. So they started measuring this wavelength as part of a drug discovery uh, um, practice that they were doing, and they were able to identify a unique signature of that protein that you cannot detect with a regular color image, uh, that uh, it's something that you'd need a hyperspectral camera to, in order to detect that specific wavelength in high resolution.
0: So here's where Redispec comes in, as I understand it. Um, You collect all this data when you sit there in in the same, in in the optometrist or the ophthalmologist's office, um, and something has to look at that data to see the kind of pathology, such as the amyloid plaques from Alzheimer's.
4: That is correct. And from the patient's perspective, they're just getting an image. What RetiSpec has developed is a software that allows to interpret that image and identify patterns that are specific to a patient who is an Alzheimer uh, patient or healthy individuals and differentiate between those by training our algorithm to do so. And so we, as part of our studies that we're now conducting in, in full scale across the nation, we are collecting data from individuals that are healthy and individuals who are confirmed Alzheimer's patients. And our algorithm looks for those patterns and are able, is able to identify whether or not you carry the pathology, the underlying pathology, that puts you at risk for Alzheimer's disease through an image in a non-invasive way in your optometry and ophthalmology setting.
0: In these clinical trials, are you looking to compare advanced Alzheimer's patients with healthy ones? Or are you looking through a spectrum of pre-Alzheimer's, mid-Alzheimer's, mild Alzheimer's, advanced? How are you strategically doing that?
4: So we are currently recruiting patients from the entire spectrum. This is very important for us to understand the progression of the disease and where could we be the most effective in our ability to detect the disease. Now, as part of our current focus of attention, we were able to confirm that our algorithm works best at early stage of the disease. When you don't have, when a patient does not suffer from any cognitive decline or any anything that is, um, uh, you can detect through a a, a cognitive test, but the pathology is there and the pathology is accumulated in a rapid pace in the brain and we are leveraging the connection between the retina, which is the back of the eye, to the brain and the imaging technology in order to identify this in a non-invasive way, identify if you do have that condition.
0: What is the step to get this approved so it can go into optometrist and ophthalmologist office. How do you get that approved?
4: You get that approved through an FDA um, uh, process. You need to start a study that's called a pivotal study, and that study is defined by the FDA, and uh, we have confirmed uh, our our study design and everything that relates to what we need in order to get to that study, uh, get that study and, and our technology approved. This is something that we're going to kickstart this year after a very uh, a focused clinical validation that we've been doing over the past few years. And uh, we're taking it in very much uh, high regards the responsibility behind the software that interprets and confirms such a, a, a very uh, important diagnosis for this individual and, and especially now. We have drugs that are approved in the market for modifying the disease um, at the early stage. So this is a very timely uh, diagnostic tool.
0: It seems to me that over time, if you can collect the data from all the people who will be in there getting their retina scanned at more than just a picture, many pictures at many frequencies, um, that you'll collect a tremendous body of data and you'll be able to learn and discern from that data much better over time.
4: That is correct. And we've already been doing this over the past few years with hundreds and hundreds of patients across the spectrum of Alzheimer's disease and also healthy individuals. And that really helped us understand more how we can contribute not only in detection, but also in monitoring the disease, monitoring the therapeutic effect of any therapy that is now in the market or is uh, under uh, clinical studies to get through uh, and and get into the market, this is a very exciting opportunity for us to see how we could track the progression of the disease through an eye examination as part of your annual checkup when you go to see your eye doctor.
0: Now, besides Alzheimer's, what other conditions might be able to be seen in the back of the eye?
4: Anything that relates to the brain, to the central nervous system, such as Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, ALS, seeing the unseen and, and, and leveraging the fact that the, the retina, which is the back of the eye, is directly connected to the brain, we could non-invasively, through a simple eye examination, at your annual checkup, get information and see the unseen and provide uh, with our software uh, early detection for these devastating diseases that is very timely, very needed, um, and, and, and could really impact a lot of people.
0: Well, Eliav, thank you so much for joining me. I hope you come back and see us again.
4: Thank you, thank you. very much.
0: Eliav Shaked is the co-founder and CEO of the Toronto-based firm Redispec. More information is available on the web at Retaspec.com. That's Reta R-E-T-I, Redispec.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.
1: Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Noctrieb Zesiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and internet audio is available on the web at TechNation.com. TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Landcourt.